Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. All right. Well, if you're here today, you survived the 4th of July in Philadelphia. That was last Sunday, um, and I don't know what your neighborhood was like, but my neighborhood was pretty wild. It was the actually the last two-fourths of July because uh, last year everyone was kind of homebound, and then this year I think we, we just broke it wide open. But my neighborhood's gone nuts the last two-fourths of July. Um, one of the things I enjoy doing is taking my sh- drone and just shooting it up in the sky and doing a 360 of fireworks just going off in every direction. I think it's really cool looking. Well, um, this 4th of July last Sunday was nuts in my neighborhood. And I, I, because I knew it was the 4th of July, I knew what was going on. But if that had been any other day of the year, I thought we are under attack. There is a war going on in the streets. There was smoke and explosions and children screaming. And on July 3rd, that would have really gotten on my nerves. But it was the 4th of July, and I just accepted it, and I knew it was coming. And in a way, it was actually kind of fun. Uh, We went out, and just all of our neighbors were out, and people were in the street, and uh, it was like a block party with no permit. Uh, the, The streets were shut down, and just people were in the middle of the street, and shooting off fireworks. We did none of that. We just observed, and uh, my car got hit. I got hit. Houses got hit. It was great. But this is the reality. If, if, if you didn't know what 4th of July was and you were in my neighborhood, you wouldn't know, is this a party or a battle? I mean, is this a war or a celebration? What is going on here? Because the smoke, the explosions, the screaming could have easily been an urban warfare scene from some sort of apocalyptic movie, the way that it was going down. But no, it was actually a patriotic holiday uh, in the United States. It was, it was a little bit like a party and a little bit like a battle. As you read Revelation chapter 19, which is in the last four chapters of the Bible, Revelation 19 is a little bit like a party and a little bit like a battle. Revelation 19 is like the primary passage that we look at uh, about Jesus returning. This is not the uh, circumstances prior to Jesus' return. This is not the mood or the culture that's going to be present when Jesus Jesus returns. This is actually the heavenly perspective of Jesus' return, okay? Uh, Revelation 19. And as we look at Revelation 19, one of the questions we might ask is, are we waiting for, for a party or a battle? You know, as followers of Jesus, the idea that he's returning should be good news to us, right? Okay, right? Yeah. Okay, all right, just checking. Is this on? Yeah, okay. The, as followers of Jesus, and this is what the church has hoped for for 2,000 years, we have looked to the return of Jesus, and we call it our blessed hope. The idea that all of the things that we would call evil, unjust, unfair, unrighteous, he's going to come back and he's going to deal with those things and he is going to institute a kingdom or a reign of good, righteousness, 
uh, wisdom, honor, and uh, he's going to institute that. And so we look forward to that, and it provides hope, but we also know that that is not going to come uh, without some sort of conflict. It's not going to come without some sort of battle that's going to take place. And so is the return of Jesus going to be a party or a battle? Both. Yeah, yes. The answer is yes. It's going to be a party, but it's also going to be a battle. And your experience of that, and you know, who knows when this is going to happen, and I'm not saying it's going to be this afternoon, although it could be, but uh, your experience of that is in some way informed or affected by your relationship to Jesus now. And as we get into Revelation 19, I think this will be clear. Now, before I read Revelation 19... Revelation 19, in fact, the entire book of Revelation is a specific genre of literature called apocalyptic. Now, if let's just do some fifth grade English class uh, stuff. When you think of poetry, that's a genre of literature, right? When you think of poetry, what's one of the first things that comes to mind? Supposed to rhyme. I mean, nowadays, I guess it doesn't, but like, I, roses are red, violets are blue, you don't like me, and I don't like you. Like, that, it's supposed to rhyme, rhyming couplets. Um, and in poetry, there's a lot of figurative language and imagery. You don't read poetry like an instruction manual, right? It's not literal, it's metaphorical. There's images, uh, images there's symbolism. Well, apocalyptic. Uh, literature is its own genre, okay? So Dr. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project describes apocalyptic literature this way. He says, it's a heavenly perspective on an earthly situation. A heavenly perspective on an earthly situation. It is what's going on on earth, but it's from God's perspective because he knows how this thing that's going on fits into the big picture. He knows how the spiritual world is influencing it. Uh, And so it's a heavenly perspective on an earthly situation. Apocalyptic literature in the Bible, you can find it in Daniel, Zechariah, Revelation, parts of the Gospels, parts of the Epistles. Apocalyptic literature in the Bible has uh, kind of three main uh, dynamics. It's visionary and it's visionary in nature. So you read Daniel, you read Zechariah, you read Revelation, they see something. I saw a white horse. I saw a doorway in heaven. I saw a vision. It's visionary in nature. They don't so much hear it or feel it They see it, and then they write it down. So that's one distinctive of apocalyptic literature. There's also angelic guidance. So this happens in Daniel. This happens in Revelation. Uh, There's there's some angels that come and explain what's going on. They're like basically angelic interpreters. They're tour guides. Uh, And if you read Revelation, you'll see John has, and in fact, we'll read it today, John has... Moments where he says, I don't know what's going on, and an angel comes and explains it to him. Does that make sense? So visionary in nature, there's angelic guidance, and then also metaphorical descriptions, okay? Imagery, symbolism, metaphors are used to communicate ideas. So I don't think I'll get in trouble by saying this, but I feel like it needs to be said. Everything in Revelation is true, but not everything in Revelation is literal, okay? I don't know that a seven-headed dragon is really going to come out of the ocean. Does that make sense? I think that's a metaphor. 
but I still think it's true. The meaning of the metaphor is true. Does that make sense? It can be true without being literal. Jesus taught in parables, like the parable of the, uh, good, the good Samaritan, also the prodigal son. You know, that's a parable. Was there really a prodigal son? No, he made that story up. It's not a literal story, but it is still true. Does that make sense? So when you're reading through certain portions of the Bible, you have to say, is this history, like most of the Gospels, the book of Acts, Exodus, you know, like, is this history? Is this poetry, like Psalms and Proverbs? Is this apocalyptic? Is this narrative? You have to figure out the, the genre. That helps you understand. Does that make sense? I realize that this sounds like a, you know, high school English class. I don't really mean for it to be, but we are reading a specific literature, uh, type of literature, and Revelation and is not the only apocalyptic literature in the Jewish tradition. There, there's a, something called the Dream Visions of Enoch, which is really weird. But if you read it, you'd be like, well, it kind of actually sounds like the book of Revelation. Now, let me read Revelation 19, now that we've said all that. Revelation 19, starting in verse 7 through verses, verse 19, two pictures of the return of Jesus Revelation 19.7 says this, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do that, for I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. This is the second image. There was one already. This is the second image. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. He who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven come assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses, of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Normal stuff. White horse flying out of the sky, bunch of other white horses eating the flesh of horses, angels flying around. Okay, this passage in Revelation 19 uses two pictures, two images, two metaphors for the return of Jesus. Just like I said, the 4th of July is kind of like a party, but also a battle. This has a party and a battle. There's a marriage, there's a wedding, 
but there's also a battle. It uses both of these. These are both equally true, equally accurate, equally helpful to help us understand the return of Jesus. Today, I'm going to spend a little more time on the wedding imagery, but I am also going to touch on the battle imagery. The reason I'm spending more time on the wedding imagery is that's what's getting ready for you and I. You and I. As followers of Jesus, that's what applies to us. You and I are getting ready for a wedding as followers of Jesus. I will also say, and this is partly why I'm going to focus slightly more on the wedding than the battle, the battle is temporary, but the marriage is forever. Does that make sense? The battle that's described in Revelation 19 is a, is a moment in time, but the marriage between the lamb and the bride is, a, is an internal union. So I'm going to spend more time on it because it's going to... Sp- Take more time. It's going to be free forever. All right, so the wedding imagery in Revelation 19, 7 through 10, says uh, in verse 10, it gives us a clue of what's going on here. David is actually, David, John. (laughs) I don't know how I mixed John and David up. John is having a conversation with an angel. He's seeing this crazy vision of a lamb getting married. And in verse 10, someone's explaining this vision to him. Verse 10, the person that's explaining it, John falls down on his feet to worship him. And that this figure says, don't worship me because he's having conversation with an angel. So remember how I said apocalyptic literature has angelic guidance. This is an example of that. This is an angel explaining this vision to him. So, uh, It talks about, this passage talks about a wedding that's taking place, a marriage. Verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So a lamb is getting married to a bride. Now earlier in Revelation it identifies a specific figure as a lamb. Who is that lamb? Jesus, okay? So when the Book of Revelation refers to a lamb. You just need to know that it's, it's an image for Jesus, okay? Jesus is getting married. Jesus has a bride. Don't, don't take a guess. Only say it if you know. Who is the bride of Jesus? Okay, thank you for not saying like Mary Magdalene or something like that. Yes, the church. The church is the bride of Jesus. How do we know that the church is the bride of Jesus? Well, not only does Revelation tell us, but Ephesians chapter 5 actually says uh, the illustration for marriage is based on Jesus' relationship to the church. This is Ephesians 5 verses 25 through 27. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So a couple things really quick. I'll get the most important one out of the way first. When this passage talks about the church having no spot or wrinkle, it's talking about the clothing, not the skin, not having wrinkles. Okay, my wife wanted me to make sure I was being very clear about that. Nothing wrong with having wrinkles in your face. It's the wrinkle in the wedding gown that Jesus is removing. Okay, everybody got that? All right, so no one, I don't want to get any emails about that. All right, cleared that up. Secondly, when, you're, when we use the 
marriage uh, metaphor to describe Jesus' relationship to the church, it's important to identify what is the substance and what is the symbol. Um, Jesus' relationship to the church is not a metaphor for marriage. Marriage is a metaphor for Jesus' relationship to the church. Jesus' relationship to the church is the substance. Marriage is the illustration or the shadow of the substance. Does that make sense? His, his relationship to the church is actually stronger, deeper, more substantial, but the, only, the closest human relationship that, that Paul could come up with to illustrate it was marriage. So uh, the bride is the church preparing to be married to the lamb. There's a marriage coming up. It says that in verse 8, it was given to her, the bride, the church, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. Okay, so this is not that far off from what we might think of of a traditional white wedding dress that a bride would wear to a wedding, right? What does that bright, clean, white linen represent? Well, let's just keep reading. It says, the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The, the bright, clean, white wedding gown it represents the righteous acts of the saints. What that means is that as the church is preparing for the wedding, and those of you that have gotten married or you've ever attended or participated in a wedding, you know that the preparation process is intense, right? As the church prepares to be married, it is going to be full of righteous acts, Righteousness, righteous deeds, righteous acts will be on the rise. Now, what's interesting is, before you think that you are self-righteous, it says in verse 8, it was given to her. So even the righteous acts of the saints are a gift that are given to her, right? So there's no room for self-righteousness here, that it is given Ephesians 5, as well as this passage, seem to indicate that the church will be glorious and without spot or wrinkle when Jesus returns. Now, for me, this is like the one sign of Jesus' return that I'm obsessed with. I know, you know, people want to get caught up in earthquakes and one world government and famines and stuff like that. I, I, I get that because it is all in the book. But so is this. I keep asking, is the church wrinkle-free yet? Have we gotten all the blots and blemishes out of the church yet? Because if we haven't gotten those things out, Jesus is not returning yet. There's still some work to be done. There's some wrinkles to get out. There's some spots to remove. There's some blemishes to deal with as the bride prepares. That's us. We're the bride for the wedding. We are the bride collectively, okay? Um, hope I can say this explain this correctly. You as an individual are not the church. Okay? A church, read the New Testament, a church has elders. A church has structure. A church has the public proclamation of the gospel. A church has discipline. Does it, you know what I mean? I'm not even talking about bylaws and buildings. I'm just talking about the stuff that's in the book of Acts. A church has teaching. If you don't have all of that, then it's not the church, and there's no way you or I as an individual could have all of those things. We're the church when we're together. You, as an individual, are not the body of Jesus, the body of Christ. 
You're a member of the body of Christ. Does that make sense? You, as an individual, are not the bride by yourself. You are part of the corporate bride. It is a plural noun, the, the bride, okay? We, together, are the bride of Jesus. So don't go isolate yourself in a cave somewhere and think you're going to fulfill the whole New Testament and all those commands and ministries yourself. You're not. You need other people around you to be the body and the bride of Jesus, this body and bride, this, this bride that's referred to in verse 8, is going to be wrinkle-free and spotless. The dress, the garment, the linen garment that's referred to in verse 7 is going to be totally wrinkle-free. Now, Tony Evans said this in a sermon about a month ago, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it. How do you get out wrinkles from a garment? Apply heat and pressure, Right? That's the only way to get it out. My, every Saturday night, my wife does all the ironing for the week. Um, and so every Saturday night, she has an ironing board set up in our bedroom, and she's just ironing all the shirts, all the pants. My shirts take a long time to iron because it's like a tent, uh, a tarp. And so, but she doesn't do it by telling it, stop being wrinkled. Straighten yourself out. She doesn't give it a self-help lecture. She applies heat and pressure. That's how you get rid of the wrinkles. I don't know about you, but the last 18 months, there's been a lot of heat and pressure in my life. Has there been a lot of heat and pressure in your life? Has there been a lot of heat and pressure in the church? Has there been a lot of heat and pressure in the world? I actually think this is part of Jesus getting the wrinkles out. You know? There's been some stains. What, how do you get a stain off a garment? You scrub it, right? You really got to work at it to get it out. And I just feel like, man, Jesus is applying the heat. He's applying the pressure. He's scrubbing. And it has not been fun. But what he's doing is preparing his bride for his return. Because we're going to be wrinkle-free and spotless. Now, I want to throw up a slide that I used about two weeks ago about the birth pains that Matthew 24 and other passages refer to that are going to precede the return of Jesus. Okay, do you remember this from, I think it was two weeks ago I threw this up here. Okay, these are called birth pains in Matthew 24. A great, these are all, the, not all, but these are some of the things that will precede the return of Jesus. A great falling away, we call this the, the great apostasy. A man of lawlessness, false religion, social and political conflict, natural disasters, and persecution. Now, in Matthew 24, these are called birth pains, but I would also say this is a great way to apply heat and pressure. This is a great way to start getting the spots and the wrinkles out of the garment of the bride. I mean, isn't persecution just a way to apply heat and pressure? Even like the, uh, the great falling away or the great apostasy is just removing uncommitted, lukewarm, undevoted followers, right? It's, uh, this, this, the birth pains are how Jesus purifies the church. I, I wish there was a better way, but you know, we, you and I, have proven that we don't respond well except for when it hurts. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way Adam and Eve were set up to function, but that's just the way it's, it's worked is... We respond to heat and pressure more than we respond to loving invitation. And so this is, 
what the process looks like. This is how he brings about the wrinkle-free, spotless state of the church in the end times. He makes it cost to follow Jesus. All of a sudden, you know, a generation ago, following Jesus was this, everyone did it. In fact, you were, you were marginalized if you didn't follow Jesus, right? You were, you were considered a little bit strange, a little bit out there if you didn't follow Jesus. It, it's crazy how in one generation, all of a sudden, you're marginalized for following Jesus, right? And so uh, it's going to cost to follow Jesus, which is going to just lead to more purity in the church and more focus and more devotion in the church. I wonder what the wrinkles that Jesus is working out now are. So if you'd have asked me 10 years ago, what are the wrinkles that Jesus is working out of the church? I'd have said, smoking, cussing, secular music, women that don't wear skirts to church. You know, that would have been my list of the, the big issues in the church. Now, I'm starting to think the wrinkles are things like racism, self-righteousness, pride, sexism. I think maybe those are the wrinkles that Jesus is dealing with right now. Classism, favoritism, James warns. There's a reason James, the brother of Jesus, warns against, warns against favoritism because it's a real thing that rears its ugly head sometimes in the church. And so, I think those are the wrinkles that Jesus is getting out. Man, I, it would almost be easier if it was those other things. You know, but, but I think he's really going after some stuff that's been worked into the fiber of the church, and he's, he's getting it out. Why is he getting it out? Because he, he's mad at us? No, he's getting it out because he's getting ready for a wedding. He's getting his bride ready. You know, that's, that's the process that he has us in. Now, really quickly, I want to read Isaiah 25 because Isaiah 25 actually prophesies this same wedding, and this will be up on the screen. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9, says, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow. Okay, let me pause. Choice pieces with marrow, what does that refer to? Well, I just, it ain't vegetables, all right? We're going to be eating ribs, wings, and other things. I'm just really looking forward to this. And if you've ever eaten ribs or wings with Shay, he's going to suck the marrow right out of it. Refined wine, I'm not really too interested in that. I I don't know why. Aged wine. On this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. That is quoted in Revelation. He will wipe away every tear. He will remove the reproach or the shame of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Now, really quick, let me go back to Revelation 19. It says, it says in Isaiah, let us rejoice and be glad. What does Revelation 19.7 say? Let us rejoice and be glad. 
The last verse that describes this wedding feast in Isaiah is the first verse that John uses to describe the wedding feast in Revelation 19. Do you think he's saying, hey guys, remember that passage in Isaiah? This is that. The wiping away of every tear, the marriage feast, rejoice and be glad. What this tells me is that our attitude about the, re- the return of Jesus should be joyful and glad. This is something we should be looking forward to, not terrified of. Now, I'm not saying, there will be a fear of the Lord, there will be reverence, but we should be looking forward to the day of the Lord. This is something that we should get joy out of, gladness. We should have hope in the return of Jesus. Now, if we go uh, further to verse 11 through 19, different imagery is used here. This is not necessarily a wedding, although the two are not in conflict with one another, but he gives another perspective of how this is going to look. Revelation 19.11, John says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Now, if you remember from last week, uh, the description of Jesus from Revelation 1, it continues, his eyes are a flame of fire. Okay, who has a flame... Who has eyes that are like a flame of fire in Revelation? Jesus, okay. On his head are many diadems or many crowns. He has a name written on him which no one knows himself. He's clothed with a robe, okay. What was Jesus wearing in Revelation 1? A robe, okay. Now this one is dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. Now was Jesus ever called the Word in the, in the New Testament? Right. Do you remember where? John, who wrote John 1? Who wrote Revelation? Okay, you seeing the connections here? It's just his way of saying it's Jesus without saying it's Jesus. Tell me this is Jesus without telling me this is Jesus. He's got the same eyes that I described before. He's got the same name that I used in the first chapter of the epistle of John. The armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. Who has a sharp sword coming out of their mouth in the book of Revelation? Okay. So that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So I hope it's really clear to you that this person on the white horse, this is not an angel. It's not even necessarily God the Father. It's Jesus Christ. This is the same person from Revelation chapter 1. This is the same Jesus that rode a donkey into Jerusalem before he was crucified. Now he is riding a white horse. A white horse is a war horse. He is coming to wage war. It says that he is called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, it's interesting because Jesus has about three titles, three or four titles in this passage. It says in verse 11, he is called faithful and true. Everything he does is true. He doesn't do anything out of manipulation. He doesn't do anything out of deceit. He's also faithful. He doesn't cut corners or let up. He's faithful. It says in verse 12 that he has a name written on him that no one knows except himself. I don't, yeah, I don't know what that is. You know why? Because no one knows except himself. Yet, there are people that say, I know. I uh, dealt with this about two years ago. Someone said, I know the name. 
But it says no one knows. But you know? Okay, so I don't know. That shouldn't be that confusing, but for some reason it is. No one knows this name. This is kind of this secret he has kept for himself. His clothes are, his name is called the Word of God. That's th- so he's called faithful and true. He has a name no one knows. He's called the Word of God. And then, verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he, it is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I kind of wonder if Jesus has a tattoo. He has King of kings and Lord of lords on his thigh. And that King of kings, if you could just connect it to verse 11, it says, on his head are many diadems. A diadem is a crown. He's the king of kings. His head has many crowns. He's the king of the nations. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. His head has many crowns. This is how, in my mind, this is what this looks like. Jesus is returning on a white horse over the earth, and he rides over Canada, and he says, I'm going to just take that Canada crown put it right here. I'm going to just take that United States crown, put it right here. Mexico crown, Ecuador crown, Nigeria crown, Australia crown, and the crowns of every nation, he wears them. He's got all the crowns. Every kingdom, every nation, every state, Jesus has the crowns for everyone because he's the king of all the kings. He's the president of presidents, the head of state of the head, head of heads of states. I don't know what's to pluralize in that phrase, but I think heads of state. He's wearing many crowns because he's the king of the whole earth and he's going to rule the whole earth. Now, this battle is pretty violent, actually. Uh, I read it already, so I'm not going to reread it, but it's pretty. It's, it's called the Great Supper of God, and they're eating the flesh. Actually, Jesus himself is not eating it. He, the birds come and eat the flesh of his enemies. And verse 19 says, The beast and the kings of the earth assemble to make war against Jesus. So this is a pretty intense battle. Now, when I think of this battle, here's what Jesus is accomplishing. And I'm using a phrase from uh, Mike Bickle. Jesus is coming to destroy everything that hinders love. He's not coming because he's in a bad mood. He's not coming because he has an anger problem. He's not coming because he's hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or his blood sugar's low. He's coming to destroy everything that slows down the progress of love. He's coming to destroy hate. He's coming to destroy unforgiveness. He's coming to destroy pride. He's coming to destroy racism. He's coming to destroy inequity. He's, this is, these are the things he's coming to destroy, which is why it's so important that we have none of those things in us. That's why he's getting the bride perfectly spotless because when he comes to destroy the spots and there's spots on the bride, what does that mean for the bride? So he's got to get that out of the bride. Right? Or else she's going to be an opponent in the battle. But if, if she's spotless and wrinkle-free, he now can go and fully judge everyone that has spots and wrinkles. Now, when I think about the return of Jesus, this is the question that people will often ask. Because some people really believe it's going to get absolutely worse. It's going to be tough. And they point to passages about tribulation and persecution. Other people point to passages about like 
144,000 being saved and multitudes for many nations. So is it going to get, is there going to be like an end time revival or is there going to be like end time persecution? Is it going to get better or is it going to get worse? And I would say both. It's going to get better and worse. Here's what I mean. In the church, things are going to get better. I don't mean better buildings. I don't even necessarily mean bigger attendance, more money. I do mean more devotion, more zeal, more passion, more purity, more unity. That's what I mean. Things are going to get better in the church, but things are going to get worse in the world. As the world puts its feet down and draws a line and says, we will not follow the leadership of Jesus, it's going to get worse. We're already seeing that to some degree. So as the world goes down, the church will go up. There's, there will be a, to use the phrase that Jesus uses in Revelation, which is a uh, physically, physical intimacy phrase, there will be a pulling out of the church from the world. Does that make sense? And so there'll be a purity in the church, but there'll be difficulty in the world. Here's the thing. We are in the church and in the world. So we're going to experience a little bit of both. Does that make sense? I mean, we're, we're, we, are, we are the church, but we currently live in the world. It's going to be a little bit better and a little bit worse for us. And it's going to be clearer and clearer uh, as that separating takes place. Now, as I mentioned uh, earlier, this battle that takes place in Revelation 19, it's, this is a temporary battle, but the marriage between the lamb and the bride is eternal. That is permanent. We should be preparing for that. I wanna, I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Jesus is not coming to battle the church. He's coming to marry it. Now, just quickly, and I'm not going to read it, but if you have your Bible open, this will not be on the screen. If you have your Bible open, after this, you see Jesus is in a battle with the beast, or what we call the Antichrist, and the false prophet. He binds Satan for a thousand years in verse, chapter 20. Okay, a thousand years. Satan is, he's bound, his hands are tied. He's bound for a thousand years. During that thousand years, Satan is unable to deceive the nations and Jesus rules on the earth. We call that the millennium, okay? A thousand years. Now, I tend to think that that's a real thing that's really gonna happen. Some people think we're in it right now. I have a hard time believing Satan's bound. I hate to see when he's not. Uh, but some people believe we're in that right now. Some people believe that's just a metaphor and it's not really gonna be a period of time. I tend to believe it is a real period of time that's gonna exist when Satan is gonna be unable to deceive the nations. And so for that period of time, whether it's a, literally a thousand years or, or not, during that period of time, people will be unhindered by Satan and will make their decision. Doesn't mean they will all follow Jesus. But it does mean Satan won't be free to, to deceive the nations. People will make their own choices. And during that thousand years, Jesus reigns on the earth with the saints. We call that the millennium. At the end of that, Satan is let out of, the, of his prison for one final battle that Jesus wins, after which Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not going to get too deep into that because there's 
Not a lot of agreement on the timeline here. I think I've just t- tipped my hand to the timeline that I hold to, and the, actually that our church and denomination hold to, but there, is, there are good people that interpret that uh, other ways. I want to give you two opportunities to respond. Okay. One is more academic and the other is more personal. If you would like to know more about the book of Revelation, this is the book that I get the most requests to teach on. And so I actually made an online class on the book of Revelation. Some of you have taken it. Raise your hand if you did the online class on Revelation. A couple of you, okay. So on our church website, if you go to blessphiladelphia.com, click on True Vine Online. Underneath that, there's a link. It's called Book of Revelation Study. What that is, is a self-guided study relying on about 12 good, credible, reliable Bible scholars that will take you through the book of Revelation at your own pace. It used to be 10 lessons. That seemed too long. So uh, this week I actually got it. I took a few things out that no one really seemed to benefit from and I shrunk a few things down and it's about, it's seven lessons. If you will take an hour on each lesson, you don't, you won't have to do everything. It's pick and choose. It's kind of like a buffet and you pick the book you want to read or the video you want to watch or the podcast you want to listen to. If you want to learn the book of Revelation, it is right there. It walks you through all 22 chapters of Revelation. You could do an, you probably need to dedicate one hour to 90 minutes to each lesson. You could do one a day for a week. You could do one a week for seven weeks. You could do this by yourself. You could do this in a small group. You could do this with your spouse. I mean, it's self-guided, but it is all there. It takes you through the book of Revelation uh, if you're interested in that. And that's something that is on our church website. Some of you have already done. So there's that. That's more kind of just for study. This is Here's something that's less academic. Jesus is returning for a pure and spotless bride. You know, if, if you can throw the birth pains slide back up, John Eric. You know, the birth pains that we're told about, there's not a lot we can do about these things. I mean, there's a little bit. I'm not saying we have no responsibility, but, you know, uh, the persecution, your only responsibility there is don't, don't give up. Right? You, you can't necessarily avoid the persecution unless you hide in a hole. The natural disasters, I don't know if you figured out how to avoid natural disasters. I haven't. Um, but a lot of these are things that you have little to no control over. These are definitely going to happen. You'll have a response to these things, uh, but you can't stop them necessarily from happening. Here's where you do have total control. Are you letting Jesus get the wrinkles and the spots out of you? You're part of the bride. You know, those wrinkles, those imperfections or sins, the blemishes, and again, I'm I'm talking about, you know, the metaphorical bride's linen dress. I'm not talking about, you know, your wrinkled, you know, skin or blemishes on your face or anything like that. I'm talking about moral blemishes, moral wrinkles. Are you dealing with those things in your life? Are you letting Jesus get at those things? Because 
You're a, you're, you're a tiny little portion of the bride, and when he is applying the heat and the pressure, he's not going to skip over you. He's not going to go around you and say, oh, your stuff's okay. Your sin is fine. I'm going to just deal with everyone else. In order for the church corporately to be pure and holy, that means at an individual level, we as individuals have to be devoted to purity and holiness. And so I know that sometimes we would want to like get the wrinkles out ourselves. Like, I'll do it, Jesus. But we never do. You know, we, we always cut corners on it. We always try to just gloss it over. You know, I, I am guilty of this. If, if I have a put on a wrinkly shirt, you know how I try to iron it? <sighs> there. And, and I think it's wrinkle-free, but it's really not. And that's kind of what we do when, when we're trying to like, I'll, I'll deal with my sin, Jesus. I'll take care of it. <sighs> Get all the sin out. And we really don't. The only person we fool is ourselves. We have to just submit to Jesus' heat and pressure process. We have to submit to what he does in our life because he is not going to hold back. And he's not going to be thorough because he hates us. He's going to be thorough because he loves us. He knows that we actually reflect Jesus most when he is thorough in dealing with these things. Does that make sense? So... I guess what I'm saying is, if Jesus is applying heat and pressure to your life, don't resist it. Don't fight it. Don't try to hide from it. Don't try to wiggle away from it. Let him do it. He loves you so much that he's going to go all the way with it. I mean, he is going to get these things out of your life one way or another. It would be better for you and more pleasurable and enjoyable for you if you said, all right, Jesus, I, you know, and, and to use other imagery from the Gospels, I die to self. You know, I, I'm taking up my cross. I want to follow you. I'm not going to try to get away from this purification process that you're leading me in. These pressures, this heat that you're applying to my life, you're trying to get out spots and wrinkles. I'm going to submit to that. I'm going to surrender to that because ultimately I know your purposes are good. You're making me more like you. Does that make sense? So here's what I'd like to do. I want to pray for you that you would have the grace Oh, oh, before I pray, can I say this? I want to pray for you that you would have the grace to do this. But let me illustrate grace really quickly because I think a lot of times we get this wrong. Grace is not Jesus excusing your sin. Grace is Jesus empowering righteousness. If you've ever been in a situation where you decided you're going to follow Jesus and it came like way easier than you thought it would, that is grace. Let me give you an example. Okay, about two weeks ago, I just felt like the Lord said to me, you need to stop listening to so much radio and spend more time in Because I listen to sports radio. I need to know what's going on with the Eagles, you know, in July. Um, I just felt like the Lord said, you need to turn that off. Now, listen, I can't find a single Bible verse that says, don't listen to the radio. You know, this is not even an issue of sin, except now that Jesus has spoken to me about it, it is an issue. Because if I say no, then it is a sin, right? This, is, this isn't even, you know, this is like a, a real little thing he's putting his, light, his, his finger on in my life. I need you to stop listening to the radio so that you can be either in worship or in silence 
hearing me. And I thought, oh, this is going to be hard. You know, I just, I always have it on in the car. I have a, a, sh- a shower radio, you know, like I got the, it's on my phone, the app. I just like, you know, who wants to be alone with their own thoughts, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, the radio is always accessible to me. And I thought, this is going to be hard. But I said, all right, I'll do it. And the first day, it was so easy. And it's been two weeks. I have not listened to one thing, one thing on the sports radio. You know why it's easy? Because of grace. It's, it shouldn't be easy. I was addicted. You know what I mean? It'd be like if the Lord said, I need you to give up coffee because you rely on coffee and not my spirit. You know, uh-oh, sorry to touch on that. Uh, he's saying that to you, not me. And, and, and you said, I'm going to do it. And then you realize, you know, this is going away. This is, it's almost like I have this extra push, this extra nudge. It's going easier. That is what the New Testament refers to as grace. When things go easier than you thought they would. When, when the spiritual gifts are referred to as the graces of God. It's like, you know, I had to stand up and teach and it went better than I thought. Or I had to share the gospel and it went better than I thought. It was easier. It wasn't, it was like it wasn't in my strength or something. Right. Because that's grace. God is giving you the grace to do these things. Does that make sense? So all of that to illustrate, I want to pray that God gives you the grace to submit to the, the ironing out, the wrinkle removing, blemish removing process. All right. Would you mind standing with me? That was the longest wrapping up in my life. Sorry. Jesus, on the surface, it does seem like you wanting to work out the wrinkles and the spots of our own moral lives and our own spiritual lives would hurt. It would be difficult. It would be uncomfortable. It would be unpleasant. So Jesus, would you give us the grace to enjoy it? Would you give us the grace that this would go, it would feel like there is other strength doing this, not our own strength. Would you give us the grace to surrender to you and to your sanctifying work with pleasure and with joy, to find joy in becoming more like you, Jesus, so that we aren't kicking and screaming and fighting against the process that you take us through. We know that you're preparing us for that day of a wedding where we will stand with the Lamb, that you will establish the the highest point of intimacy and covenant between you and your bride, Jesus. You're preparing us for that day. Give us the grace to, to be prepared. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.